thank you for coming. Before we begin, just one piece of housekeeping, which is to please turn off your mobile phones or put them on silent. Now I'm absolutely delighted to introduce the curator, Dexter Wimberley. This afternoon, he'll be in conversation with the artist, Teo Asetu. Dexter is an independent curator born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He is the director of strategic planning at Independent Curators International. A passionate collector and supporter of the arts, Dexter has exhibited the work of hundreds of the artists in the US and abroad. Dexter maintains a critical dialogue with artists internationally by way of his exhibitions, public programs, and talks at galleries and art spaces. He has organized exhibitions and programs for Mixed Greetings Gallery, Edward Tyler, Nahum Fine Art, Bitford's Gallery, Koki Arts in Tokyo, the Museum of Contemporary African Diaspora and Arts in New York, among others. Thank you. Is my microphone on? Can everyone hear me well? How, how are you? Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Um, we have a bit of an intimate group. I guess it's another word for small. So if anyone is feeling like they want to come a bit closer, feel free to move up <laughs> a bit. Um, you don't have to space yourselves out so much. Um, I'll give you a moment to do that. <laughs> Let's get soulful. Yeah. I'm used to having a microphone in my hands, so I'm not quite sure what to do with my I'm hands just, just, right now. I'll just <laughs> pretend as if I do. Um, so I have the pleasure of, of speaking with uh, Teo Ishitu today. And um, like, like some of you, I'm sure, I'm just getting to know his work, and I've had the, uh, the pleasure of uh, having an extensive chat with you on Friday, and then I uh, went to your exhibition last night. I'm going to give you guys a, a bit of background. Um, Teo grew up in Addis Ababa and, and London before establishing himself in Rome. Today he lives and works in, uh, in Berlin. Uh, you were born in London, however, correct? Uh, throughout the 80s and 90s, Theo's works were shown at major video art festivals, receiving awards in Berlin, Milan, and Locarno. Uh, Teo has enjoyed solo shows at the National Museum of Art at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and, and, and the United States, uh, the Baltimore Museum of Art, uh, the UNESCO headquarters in Paris, uh, um, the Palais de Beaux in uh, Brussels, and also uh, the American Academy in Rome. His works have also been presented at the uh, Cochi uh, uh, Biennale and the 54th Venice Biennale and the Charger um, uh, Biennial. Work by Teo is currently showing at the uh, Goldberg uh, Biennial in Sweden and Deutsche Bank Kunsthall in Berlin. And also his first solo exhibition in the UK is uh, currently on view at Tawani Co Contemporary here in London. And I encourage you all to, uh, to see that show. It's uh, quite fantastic. Um, Teo, you've been making art for, for over 30 years now. So I, I think there's a lot to cover and a lot to talk about. And, and I think that's also the reason why we're not going to have any um, vi videos or, or visual aids here, because uh, where do we begin and how do we actually encapsulate um, your, your, your story and your history mm. and your life in and, and those, and those images? So could you, could you share a bit with us about uh, the current exhibition at Tawani? I, I was actually quite surprised that this was your first solo exhibition in the UK when I found that out because you've been so prolific in, in making your work. Can, you, can we use that as a starting point and tell us a little bit about that exhibition and yeah. how it came to be? It came to be because someone asked me to do a show, <laughs> as simple as that. Um, I'd done other shows in, in England. Um, 
Um, I had presented some fil a film, a video actually, um, at the London Film Festival um, in 92. Mm -hmm. And it was actually one of the first video pieces shown at the London Film Festival in the days when there was a clear distinction between video and cinema. And, uh, and then that was screened for about a week at the ICA after that. But then, you know, with cinema and, and, and videos, it wasn't really called solo shows. It was just uh, either a retrospective or, uh, or continuous screenings. So this is actually the first sort of um, gallery exhibition I've had in, in London, yeah. And the works in the show, um, th there's, a, there's video, of course. I mean, it's something you've become quite known for, but there are also um, uh, photography or, or, or works on, or mounted works on paper in the show. Uh, though we don't have the, the, you know, the ability to sort of reference the work specifically um, with an image here, but could you tell us a little bit about um, the, the body of work that's in the exhibition? Well, I think um, my, main, my first love was photography. And, um, but I soon realized that if, uh, as a student, that, um, that really video was the new thing that nobody was doing. And I felt that I could do, make a mark in, in that field. I could sort of say something that I didn't know anyone else to have said before. So I thought that I could sort of develop an artistic identity through video, even though I'll admit that like most people at the time, we just thought video was kind of an ugly medium really. And uh, we didn't think that, uh, I mean, there were some artists using videos, you know, conceptual artists right. using video. <clears throat> but um, when I started in the late 70s, early 80s, it was also the birth of the VHS. So it was a, right. the birth of the fact that you didn't have to go to a studio or you didn't have to be sponsored by a big institution. You could just buy the equipment and do your own thing. So that's how I started thinking that I could do video, even though I love photography and hated video. I, I, I tried to find out how I could make it, um, I guess, a sign of medium for my poetics, if I, if I can say that. And, uh, so that's how that all began. And, uh, and so I basically was working as a video maker and a photographer for quite a number of years. And whenever I do exhibitions, I do, especially gallery type of exhibitions, try to combine photography and video. And I think that the show in Tiwani strikes a happy balance between the video and the photography and the relationship between them. And, uh, yeah. um, the, the, my next question, really, I, I think it's something you probably have had to talk about um, quite often throughout your, your career, this idea of being from several different places and, and the challenge of finding a place to sort of uh, identify with as, as, as home, so to speak, or, or sort of a place of origin. You were, you were born in London, you, you grew up in Ethiopia. Um, and I'm sure, you know, because of your, your father's work with the UN, you traveled all over the world um, as, as a child. And then until fairly recently, you were living in Rome. Um, that's where your studio was. And now here we are in London talking about your show. So you've kind of gotten around. How's, how's that sort of, um, sort of peripatetic or, or transient aspect of your life affected your work? I think it's the core of it. You know, it's, uh, it's a, I say it's the core of it because, uh, because that 
the fact of being, uh, you know, Ethiopian father, Dutch mother, born in London, living in Rome, speaking four languages before the age of three, um, uh, sort of uh, made me a visual person for a start. <laughs> and uh, and I, I suppose, you know, when you're a teenager, you just want to be like everyone else, you know? You want to be right. like your friends. And, and you realize that maybe you're not exactly like your friends. There's something always, there's something different about you. Right. And, uh, and, um, and so tackling this di difference was uh, what attracted me to video making. Because, uh, you know, you think uh, Italian cinema, or you think uh, French novels, or you think, you know, so, so these forms are associated with a nationality. They're associated with a, with, a, with an education system there, you know. Whereas when I studied, I couldn't care less about Mary Queen of Scots, you know, because I was in an English school, but I was not English, you know. And, uh, and so in a sense, what's, what I saw in video was uh, a medium that didn't have an identity in the way I felt I didn't have a clearly defined ident identity. And so this mixture of being of different cultures and of different backgrounds is a kind of <coughs> feeling, is, is that the right word? Is, is it's a kind of um, thing that I uh, attributed to the very essence of video making, which is a bit cinema, it's a bit it can be a bit literature, it's a bit, you know, montage, graphics, music, you know, you, you, say you have to mix different art forms to make a video. So I created a parallel between these different nationalities to be a self, as it were, and the medium which also was a composite of different other uh, forms of expression. Um, last night when we were... That's how I came to really identify. Right, with. right. Of course. Um, last night when we were um, at Tawani and I was looking at uh, Meditation Light, it was uh, the, the five uh, screen video piece that you made in 2006, if I'm not mistaken. Um, in one of the scenes, there were uh, farmers in Ethiopia doing, doing their work, and I had asked you if you had actually um, asked them to perform this task or if you were just sort of ob observing. Um, and you mentioned to me that you've never asked anyone to actually do anything on video. You just simply capture what's happening. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit more about your process and sort of how you're engaging with your subjects and selecting them? Yeah. I've, I've, never, I've never asked anybody to do anything. You know, I mean, even when I use actors, I just sort of, I mean, that's why I'm not a film director, actually, because I don't tell the actors what they should do. Um, I did a video many years ago called La Madonna, and there were these three young ladies who played the Madonna figure, and they were just sitting there while I was projecting slides on them and making things fall down. And, uh, and in a sense, what was charming about that video was the fact that nothing was being told to them. And of course, as an art student, I was aware of Warhol, even you know, switching on a camera and walking out of the room. So I thought, you know, you don't need to tell anybody anything. You just need to see what life is like and, and, and how people maybe react to you. So for example, I even like it when people sort of look at the camera and start waving, you know, which, <laughs> which a director doesn't do. You know, you say, look on the side, pretend I'm That ended my movie know. career. What? That ended my movie career. Oh, that ended your movie, well, in a cinema, <laughs> yeah. No, no, but I like people waving at the camera or, you know, looking or, uh, I mean, there was a ritual that I filmed many years ago and I was, 
the only person filming it, and it was in a very remote part of Ethiopia, and uh, this woman goes into a trance. And when she goes into a trance, they pick her up and they put her down, and I thought, well, that's happening over there. Let me just observe it from here that it's happening there. I'm not a news reporter. You know, I'm not going to get up and run towards the person in the trance, as it were. I'm just going to observe. And when they saw that I didn't do that, they picked her up and they brought her towards me. <laughs> so, so this idea of how a photographer's presence or a filmmaker's presence affects reality right. um, is part of the dialogue. You know? So it's a dialogue of observing reality for what it is and trying to see things in terms of, uh, of, of, of symbol, of, of, of metaphor. You know, someone's face is the world's face. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not Joe's face. You know, mm -hmm. Joe's face can be the world's face. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a way of looking. It's a way of uh, acting. It's a way of making friends, quite frankly. You know, I mean, uh, I make a lot of videos just to make friends. You know, when I was in Berlin, um, I just invited people to the studio. There was no work for them to see, and I just filmed whatever they wanted to do. And uh, that's how we became friends. So it's, a, it's a way of communicating at that level. It's so interesting what you mentioned about the woman going into uh, a trance and, and how your presence affected the act that happened. It always makes me question anything that I see on video in terms of its authenticity because I, I believe that the presence of the camera um, affects um, what's happening. I mean, there's now cameras are so ubiquitous because of cell phones and, and, other, and other things, but um, I'm, always, uh, I'm always curious about that. Could we speak um, for a little bit about um, one of your works that I, I would imagine um, would be considered to be um, sort of seminal in, 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 your, in your career, and that's uh, the, the return of the Axum Obelisk. Um, so I did a little bit of research so that I could understand a bit more about that work. I'm not sure if, if the people present here um, know the work, um, but could we talk a little bit about that? I have some specific questions, but could you give some background on that work and how it came to be? I mean, I suppose that was a climax of a lot of thought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I was wondering how to make an impressive video installation, you know, and I was wondering, I'm always interested in the relationship between painting, art, and video. You know, I don't, um, it's a complex relationship because it's a relationship about um, a static medium with a time-based medium. Mm -hmm. So that, that creates already a certain complication, you know, you need time to see it. Not like a painting where you choose your time. Uh, you're being told what, how, what. So anyway, there was that kind of thought going on. But then there was also thoughts about my Ethiopian identity. There was um, so it's based on a tableau, a painting, which tells the story of the Queen of Sheba mm -hmm. and uh, the creation of the Aksum Empire. And um, I lived in Rome, and the Axum obelisk had been taken from Ethiopia to Rome. So when I arrived in Rome, my father worked at FAO, the building where the obelisk was. So it's something I've known since childhood. So it's the obelisk is it's a kind of a biographical element. You know, it's a kind of um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, it's, it's part of my Ethiopian identity's presence in, 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 in Rome. And so when it was being sent back to Ethiopia, it also coincided, I suppose, when a time, at a time when I was thinking of leaving Rome and considering that maybe going to Ethiopia might be a good idea. You know, going to uh, Ethiopia seemed more exciting than Rome, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Right. And so 
Okay, well, that would be maybe a s uh, personal layer, but then there is a historic layer, there is a, maybe I should explain actually. Um, it's an installation made on 15 video screens, and um, the, the traditional painting, which recounts the story of the Queen of Sheba, is done on 15, 44, 22 tableaus, and these tableaus are then, in the painting, are then transformed into video screens. So the tableaus show how the Axum Empire was created, right. and the video shows how the obelisk was returned to Axum, where it had been taken to Italy during colonialism, and then returned to its original site. So there's many things happening at many levels in that mm -hmm. piece, and therefore I think it's, uh, it's, it's been a hit. Um, you know, it, the, um, the idea of of colonialism and how that impacts um, one's work. It's something that I, I know as, as a curator, I, I've encountered many artists who, particularly American artists, who are, uh, who are African American or from the African diaspora and grappling with the, the historical impact of colonialism on their identity and on their work. Um, and you know, it's interesting um, that you mentioned that you were living in Rome at the time. Um, you were thinking about leaving and, and, and sort of tracing also the return of the obelisk back to, to Ethiopia. And, um, and that just reminds me, just such an interesting parallel between sort of that experience and the experience even I can speak to as an, as an African American and thinking about retracing my roots and heritage and going back and, 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 and sort of how history has uh, played quite the interesting shell game in terms of how I see myself and, 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 and where I see my identity. I, so for you, your work has sort of benefited from that, it seems, in, in many ways, because you're able to pull from so many different, um, so many different influences and so many different things. Yeah, I mean, I started just thinking about biography, really. You know, uh, it's, it all started with biography. Where, where do I stand in this body that's half black and half white? And, um, and from there, I sort of expanded into how are we, how are people, what are relationships between individuals, and what are in relationships between different cultures. It doesn't have to be biography. What's the relationship between China and South America, for example? You know, it's uh, what are, because that's what it's all about, really. Right. It's about relationships, right. you know? And so the colonial one is obviously a very strong one because of slavery, because of a, of, of, of a dark history, and because of its, because of the huge problem that it was, you know? So, but I don't think I've ever tackled that issue head on, as it were, directly. Um, because I somehow think that as an artist, you have to sort of create from your own experience and touch on subject matters which touch you mm -hmm. and, um, and try to see what, what, what elements from your own experience can shine a light on, on, on the bigger picture of things. Right. right. So it's that way around. When we were talking about um, your, a recent project um, in Germany, um, the, you were uh, um, commissioned to do, to do an installation and you, you used a disco ball um, that in sort of was reflecting light on Polynesian boats um, inside the space. So sort of close <coughs> your eyes and imagine this. 
Um, could, you, could you talk a bit about that? Because I, I, I thought that that was also something that um, was, was quite stunning and, and sort of also further illustrates this juxtaposition of cultures and, and time. A lot of my videos um, are solutions to problems, really. <laughs> you know, I get posed a problem and I try to find a solution. And then what happens, the work is the solution to that problem. So I was invited by the Ethnographic Museum to present something. And so I said, well, okay, I'll present this. And they said, no, well, we don't want a work that exists. So I said, okay, well, then I'll make something new for you. And they said, no, you've got to do it like next week. And so you don't have time to do something new. And so I thought, well, that probably means that. And then they said, it's you know, just a little idea, just something simple. And um, so that was a problem. You know, no time to make a video, no time to show an old one. Uh, I assumed they had no budget. Uh, and uh, so I said, well, let's just place a disco ball in the Polynesian boat room. And of course, the directress of the museum was very upset. She said, I hope you're not thinking of placing a disco ball in my museum. And she said that because, of course, it's a very serious, scientifically-based museum. And the idea of placing a disco ball in such a respectable institution um, seemed like too much of a provocation. Right. But the point is that it was a comment on the fact that this ethnographic museum is going from Dahlem in the outskirts of Berlin to the Humboldt Forum, which is in the center of Berlin, and therefore it's a reflection on, on this move. When we did the show, it actually was very beautiful because the boats, there were stars, and it seemed like uh, constellations of uh, navigation routes to discover new worlds, and uh, it, the irony was not missed out on people, and, uh, and it went very well. And, uh, and it seemed also a comment, and you know, I, I then discovered that actually the very essence um, of, uh, of video, if you boil it down to the very essence, the very root of it, you'd probably get a disco ball, which is light moving in time. You know, that's what television is, it's just light moving in time. So I just uh, embraced it, as it were. And the disco ball um, appears in multiple places in your work. Um, in, in the exhibition at Tuani, I, I, I saw that the disco ball sort of uh, stands prominently um, in, I believe, five of the works that are, that are in the show. And, yeah, and I, think I would it, even if you take the disco ball out of its disco context, <laughs> which you don't have to, of course, you know, because we're all dancing under disco balls all over the world. You know, right. it's, it's what unites us the best, isn't it? Uh, but if you take it as a sort of phys um, uh, a symbolic object, you could start reading all sorts of things into it. Uh, and so it was interesting. I'm interested in, for example, uniting opposite things. Okay. So get the beautiful and the ugly, put them together and see what happens. Or get um, an idea of up and an idea of down and put it together and see what happens. And so in a sense, some of the pieces in the exhibition they point maybe to a sort of rather serious, but something I believe in, um, maybe Jungian approach to symbology, as it were. And then the disco ball kinds of just knocks that off balance and creates uh, even a wider reality because uh, it seems to disrupt the, 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 the seriousness of the original symbol. Mm. I don't know if I explained that very well, sorry. The, wor the word soul um, 
tends to, to appear um, often in, in, in my research about you in, in reading, reading interviews and, and articles. And I know that the word soul, from, a, from an American context, obviously from a religious context, we understand like what soul means. But um, from a sort of a pop culture or American context, it's very much connected to sort of like soul music. And well, when culture. I started, I thought I want to make soul videos the way soul musicians make soul music. You know, I see. As simple as that, you know? I mean, I was a... Am a great fan of Otis Redding, of James Brown, of you know that was that's what I would do when I started. I would just watch TV and listen to James Brown. You know, I'd take the sound off. The bad thing about TV is not the images; it's the sound. So you turn the sound off. You just watch all the should I say trash? I don't know. You just watch all <laughs> the stuff that's on TV and you listen to your favorite music. And that's how I started making my first videos. Um, by by realizing that in that contrast between right. the music and the images, something happens which is interesting. And I made that part of my language. Have you avoided using sound in your work? No, the sound is so important. Why should I avoid it? It's, uh, it's my secret. The sound is my secret because I try to make images the way a composer might make um, a symphony, a, a composition. So the logic of my videos, because some people say, oh, they're non-linear, you know? Why, because they expect them to be cinema and it's not cinema, or they say it's, uh, ooh, it's, you know, it's very particular. But basically what it is, and this is uh, secret revealed, is just, it's the logic of music applied to moving images. So it's as if instead of, you know, and music is just so wonderful. It's ethereal, and therefore I think it's very closely connected to video making, which is also something you can't grasp. It's not like film right. as a negative, you know. Right. It's, it's something which is ethereal and ungraspable. And, you know, you might hear a, a Beethoven symphony, and you might uh, say, well, this is about the king and the pastoral and the this, and it talks about the human spirit striving to reach it, you know. I use all those things. Like, um, you know, the, talking about soul, from a lot of soul music, but in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, I was uh, listening much more to jazz. And um, so things like A Love Supreme by John Coltrane and uh, Archie Shepp and all those sort of free jazz musicians that were forging new musical grounds through a kind of spiritual awareness um, in order to forward the frontiers of jazz. I thought that's a pretty good method to use for discovering what can be done or not with video. That's great, thank you. Um, one of the works um, that, I, that I saw last night um, incorporated, um, I believe it was a, a sort of a dialogue guide that, that was uh, related to alchemy. And, and we, we talked a little bit about alchemy and magic, and, and, and you, you mentioned that alchemy is very, um, um, something you believe in and something that's influenced you. Can we speak a little bit about that and how that affects your work? Yeah, <clears throat> well, alchemy, I believe in it, I don't know. Um, alchemy is something, it's the first science maybe and um, nobody believes in alchemy anymore. But uh, what's interesting about alchemy, or at least what I find interesting and what connects to my way of making videos, is that in an alchemic drawing, you try to explain things which can't be explained in words. 
And the way you do that is you put different symbolic representations in relationship to each other. So you might put a globe, you might put a man and a woman, you might write eternal truth underneath. And so that image becomes an image of a concept, of an idea. So what I would do is, because I was interested in, um, in Jungian psychology and, and symbolism and uh, had read man and his uh, symbols, um, I, re I used to make videos which I thought were totally instinctive. And, um, and then I realized that all these things that I thought were totally instinctive actually could be deciphered if they are interpreted symbolically. And so the monkey was me monkeying around. It wasn't just that I thought that I should put a monkey there, you know. It actually had a meaning and said something about me. So I realized that making videos was somehow therapeutic. And so alchemy comes into this because alchemy, for example, nativity, which some of you might have seen. I know a couple of you were here this morning. Um, nativity is a video that's made on alchemic principles. So it's basically a series of symbols put together of birth uh, of, of, and rebirth put together to tell you something about, I, I would say, the birth of video art for me uh, or the birth of a new way of understanding the world as mediated through the electronic image. Um, in, in your... Um in, in one of the bios that, that, I, that I read about you, it, it describes you as a filmmaker known for um, uh, pioneering work across film, television, and video. And I think for a lot of people, the distinction between those things is still kind of blurry. I'll admit, even for myself, that sometimes I use them interchangeably, but they're not interchangeable. And so, uh, you know, as one who works in these three distinct media, um, so to speak, what's the distinction to you uh, yeah. between film, video, and television? There are many ways. I mean, there is one level where you could say there's no distinction, okay? Because they're all about moving images, and therefore they're all the same because they're all moving images. So we could put animations and cartoons there as well because that's about moving images. Um, maybe we wouldn't put performance art because somehow there isn't a medium associated with it. So, okay, mm -hmm. so the medium becomes important. So the difference already between video and film is the one is one medium and the other is another medium. So that's already a distinction. Television is yet another medium which is similar to video because it uses the same technology, but it's, it's something that comes into your house and out the box and into your living room. So those platforms, shall we call it that, mm -hmm. those, those locations, those... Um, those, those things create a slight distinction between them. So if I have a camera in my hand and make something with a video camera, I can do whatever I want. If I'm doing television, I can't do whatever I want. I have to construct something that communicates to the TV viewer in a d determined fashion. Mm -hmm. So I do that as well. But it's different from just taking the camera and filming this and putting it on the screen for half an hour because I decided I want to do that. And then cinema, you could say, well, you could do that with a film camera as well. Um, yes, you can. Or you could say, well, with film, you've got to ideally pay an entrance ticket and sit down for two hours and watch a narrative. And then you could say, ah, oh, but there are plenty of filmmakers that don't do that. So these are just endless discussions that we uh, like of to course. have. Of course.
course, of course. Um, one more thing before, um, I, I, I'm not sure how we are in time here. I think we have a bit of time. Um, I guess I wanted to talk a bit about um, what's going on in your career right now. Um, there seems to be quite a bit of activity, and um, not to put you on the spot to be sort of uh, self-aggrandizing, but I'd love to, to sort of hear about um, some of the other exhibitions and other projects that you're working on in addition to the, the exhibition at Tawani. Well, yeah, it's a good moment, put it that way. Uh, I have a show on at uh, the Deutsche Bank in Berlin, which is a new piece, which I thought I'd never really managed to show because it's quite an ambitious 18-screen uh, video installation, which mainly just shows trees and people just doing anything. So, you know, it doesn't have a strong motivation to be shown, but, I mean, it, it, it actually works and it's very nice and I'm very glad I have the opportunity to, sh to show it. Mm -hmm. And currently I'm working on an exhibition, uh, a video for an exhibition called Streamlines, which will be at the Daitorhalle in December um, this year. And that's going to be, again, something totally new, something totally different, but maybe a, a point of departure from Anima Mundi, which is at the Tiwani show, not using a box, but using a floor with a mirror in it and an opening in a wall. So, and then the theme of that is, is this exhibition called Streamlines. So it's an exhibition about the interconnectivity of uh, the ocean as a space of interconnection, Hamburg as a place of uh, where goods came into Hamburg and went out to Hamburg. And my particular piece is a reflection on uh, the idea of free ports. Um, you don't see it in the work, but uh, that's the kind of uh, thing I'm thinking about, this idea of, uh, of free ports. It's a bit too long to get into now. But uh, any plans to go back to Rome? Um, yes, I need to go back to Rome to edit the video for, Ham for Hamburg. Um, so, I mean, I just go backwards and forwards between Italy and, and Berlin. Mm -hmm. I live in two places. Fantastic. And I also, I ran into a, a curator of a, a significant museum in, in, in the U.S. who mentioned to me that she's planning to show your work sometime in the near future. So quite a bit is going on. And, you know, you know so congratulations on, on all of that. And there's also a fantastic interview in the current issue of Modern Painters. Um, for those of you who uh, want to sort of hear a bit more about um, what Teo's been up to, this has been fantastic talking to you. I'd love to open it up and see if there are any questions um, in the audience. Does anyone uh, have anything they'd like to, to ask? Oh, fantastic. I, Hello. I love, I love going If back you could go back in time uh, when you... Oh, sorry. Sorry. Ricky Elizabeth uh, from Chartered Quality Institute. That's where I work. If you could go back in time when you used to make art while listening to music and you could select one of the artists to work with live, who would you choose? Well, he'd have to be alive, you know. Um, alive or dead, actually. Or dead. Yeah. Then it just opens up, doesn't it? <laughs> I did try to make a video with James Brown. I, um, actually, I did get in touch with James Brown and wanted to make a film about him. I was such a fan. I used to know how to dance like him as well. 
Uh, and um, I, in, in the early 90s, I made a film with this actor called Lindsay Kemp, who was uh, David Bowie's teacher. And when I was much younger, I was a real David Bowie fan. So to work with David Bowie's teacher was like something special. And uh, that video in the early 90s was very successful because it was a long-form video. It wasn't arty. It, it, it was arty but could go on television. So it had both things. And it put me on the map as being able, in a position, to propose whatever I wanted to propose. Uh, um, and so I thought, let me choose four of my idols of sort to try to make another portrait of and one of them was James Brown. Cool. Now there's a film about James Brown, and, uh, <laughs> and et cetera, et cetera. But then Thelonious Monk would be the true answer, but you know, he wasn't alive, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> Hi, I'm Lisa Putten from Access Gallery. Oh, we work with Teo. Um, I think it would be interesting, Teo, for you to talk about your relationship between photography and video as a medium, I mean, you've spoken about the content, but I know that your work has really grappled with that in terms of the notion of playing with the two media. So I think that would be great for you to talk about. Especially through your early work, you know, when you really started working with those two media. It's strange, you know, I mean, the, the, the first relationship was a conflictual relationship because I adored the American photographers of the 40s, 50s, the Diane Arbuses, and I, I adored the earlier Cartier-Bressons, August Sanders. You know, I, that's what I, when I was a little child, my grandfather gave me a camera, and someone said, oh, those are nice pictures, and I thought, okay, I want to be a photographer. So that, you know, this is the first good thing I did when I was little. And so then I s was taking pictures of musicians when I was, 14, 15, 16, and selling them to magazines. And um, so I took pictures of, uh, well, people like James Brown, but also people like the, the Rolling Stones and David Bowie when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, Bob Marley. Um, and then I started studying art, so I stopped taking pictures of musicians and began to, ref and then that was a time of conceptual photography. So I incorporated the idea of ugliness and photography and not beauty. So the, the dialogue was photography for its intrinsic beauty or photography for its capacity to represent reality and bring forward an interesting concept about our perception, um, which is also very interesting. And um, so this relationship between aesthetic and conceptual became uh, a kind of two opposite things to, discuss, to, to consider. And then like my tendency of mixing opposites, I thought, well, why can't you be conceptual and be aesthetic at the same time? Why not? Just put them together. And so that's how I really began practicing as an artist, by trying to do works which were conceptually strong. And uh, um, by strong, I mean not just that, that represented various levels of deep thoughts, and at the same time were a total exploration of the aesthetic possibilities of the medium of video, which meant detaching myself from photography 
And then in terms of practical reasons to do exhibitions and, uh, and just reflect on the image, because ultimately that's what it is, it's a reflection on the image. It's a distinction between representing, um, distinguishing between the image when it's still, and that's a whole thing of how can we reflect on the image when it's not moving, and more importantly, what happens when the image moves? Suddenly, a whole bunch of other things happen. So I'm always thinking, actually, of these two things, and very much in the folds and details of the implication of movement and the implication of stillness. Um, I hope that answers the question. Antje Bronkowski, when uh, when you started leaving photography and uh, started committing to video, uh, who are the artists that you were looking to for ideas or inspiration? In in video. In video. Um, they were my fellow students, actually. Um, dare I say I didn't like any video? Oh, I, the truth is probably I didn't know any other video artists which is why I started doing videos, because I thought, nobody's doing this. And the ones who I did like were my fellow students. Um, one particular uh, a fellow student of mine called John Mabry, who's become, in the meantime, a very famous film director, he always said he was making films. <laughs> uh, he never said he was making videos. But he really made me understand that making videos can be an art. And uh, so I credit him for that. And then, of course, by then beginning to show video, uh, videos in festivals, I saw that there were others around. And, uh, but I thought that n nobody was really on the kind of wavelength that I was in at the time. Um, there was a, a tendency to use video as an alternative to cinema or as a kind of alternative to TV or as an alternative to art without really um, without really going into the mechanisms of video making. So, and then there was this other thing with a few people around the world um, that we all had this idea that somehow video making is about expressing your soul. I use that word again, it's unfashionable, I know, but <laughs> you're representing something that's in you. And um, so we sort of teamed up and we all thought, yes, that's what video should do. And we just snobbed anyone else who wasn't doing that. But, you know, we were young. Ursula um, Gompels, University of London. I was wondering um, where you see the, the place of the art video in the YouTube world now. Do you see that as... Um, as an enhancing feature in globalization or constraining now in the changes with the internet? I mean, that is now. That is now. Um, I maybe belong to a generation where I believe in a certain artisanal quality of video making, you know, like a, like a hammer and chisel or like a painter. Um, I always said I'd never use my hands, and so I would never paint or make sculptures. But I do use video the way an artist 
would use painting. Um, I am obviously totally fascinated with YouTube and with pop videos. I, I love it all. But there is not the quality of making something with you know, hands or no hands, you know. And, and what's fascinating about YouTube is, uh, is the, the extreme consumption of images. And, the, and actually, really, the deep, uh, you know, what I like about YouTube are the accidents and people falling. And <laughs> I mean, I think those are the interesting things because you realize how tragic, how tragic life is. You know? And uh, you have an insight into how easy it is to fall and hurt yourself in the way we never had before, you know. We, we <laughs> their lives <laughs> tragedies. But, you know, uh, another thing, of course, is uh, the incredible library that YouTube is. Uh, I can't believe it. You know, I could, I could re-see a concert I saw in the 80s by Googling it or, you know, looking for it on YouTube. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Or that TV program that no one watched in 1978 and, or that university lecture that no one heard of, you know, you could... I often wonder that's amazing. about those that's things, really but you know what I really wonder about? Who's the person that's uploading those obscure things? <laughs> whenever I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but whenever something occurs it takes a to long me time. that I, I say to myself, I, time I haven't seen this, videos, I say right? I haven't seen this in, in, in 30 years when I was a kid. It can't be on YouTube. And I put it in, and lo and behold, there, and, and I'm fascinated, then I stop and I go, who put this on there? <laughs> Who was the person that thought it was important enough to find this weird, obscure little show that was on for all of six weeks in 1980? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's exactly. an important part of accessibility. For example, your own videos, that reaches a much wider audience worldwide. So it's an important aspect well, of image making now, wouldn't you say? In terms of... I think it, I think it, I mean, we were talking about the distinction between film, video, and television, right. okay? So let's include internet on that as well, because you know it's part of the same family of things. No moving images. That's what it's about. Um, if I were to make a piece for YouTube, I would make it very differently from the way I make work now. In other words, I would contemplate the way it's being viewed and the way it might be accessed, and then make a construction to suit that way of consuming the image. I know I'm very contorted, I'm sorry. But, uh, but you see what I mean? Um, whereas I think taking one of my videos, which I imagine should be on TV and just appear in someone's living room by surprise, or where you're supposed to sit in a dark room and be engulfed into this uh, bombardment of images or whatever it is, somehow it just doesn't work on YouTube. And so I'd rather not put it on because it'll be a misrepresentation of it. It'll be like, a consumption of it in, and not an experience of it. And so much of my work is about experience that I'm not really interested in my work being consumed. Mm. I'm more interested in it being experienced. Call me a control freak, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think we have time for two more questions. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank um, you. I'm interested to hear you say a little bit more about sound and your relationship to sound, and also the connection with collaboration, because you mentioned quite a lot of your interest in jazz, and so much of certain types of music is a collaboration between a number of different people jamming together. 
So how is that, is that relevant to you, how you approach the making of your work? Yeah, I think so. I mean, of course, at one level, I, I think of a video idea. I think of an idea. You know, like I might think, um, I want to go to the Himalayas, or I might think, I'm, I want to go and talk to my granddad, or I might have the opportunity to do something. You know, someone says, hey, why don't you do this? And I say, oh, okay, I'll do it. And so there is obviously a, a different, uh, a, a range of starting points. But as soon as I start working, and as soon as I start developing the idea, I tend to get my inspiration from music in some way. And even if it's not one musician's, I make very, very complex musical collages. I'm a record collector. I have been ever since I was very young. So I know a lot of, I know more about music than some musicians, you know? I mean, I'm not just saying that. And sometimes composers, when they see my musical collages, because I dare, since I'm not a musician, I can risk and dare mixing Ligeti with Messiaen and then putting Kajak dance on top of that and then slipping a bit of Duke Ellington and, uh, you know, it's outrageous, you know, but when musicians see that, they are in awe of the courage and the structure and I just managed to do it because I'm not really a musician. So there is that kind of dialogue and then, and then a lot of musicians want me to work with them because they realize that I understand them the way no other visual person understands them. Because they, you know, they sort of talk about many things and a visual person says, well, you know, I don't hear any of that in your music, it's just notes, isn't it, you know? Whereas I can really enter the, the imagination of a composer and I can really transform that imagination, the way a composer imagines it, into concrete images. And even though it might seem abstract from a certain point of view, it's makes musical sense. I, I, you know, I have overtures in my videos. I have um, arias, I have uh, duets, I have a, a finale, I have a, a, a climax which corresponds to a musical climax. You know, I do it instinctively, I think. You know, it's not like I'm there studying. You know, I, um, it's, it's instinctive because I love music. So I know after a while I get bored if the piece is too long and so I make the video not too long either. You know, I make it the same length in, you know, that, that you could sort of tolerate and enjoy hearing the music. As I said, it's my secret, <laughs> which I'm revealing to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, I'm Koyo. Uh, and I can confirm that Teo is an amazing DJ. Ah, <laughs> that's true. I've been dancing to his DJing over the past years, so, and it can really take you from one end of the dance floor to the other. Um, my question relates really to uh, uh, this strong, strong relationship and connections that you make between the moving image and music. But I've always been intrigued somehow in your work where there is, I sort of sense and see a strong connection or desire or love for symmetry. And um, so my question is, I think, how do you put this symmetry or how do you bring it in connection with the types of music that you mentioned, which are quite polymorphic, polyphonic, 
and uh, not very symmetrical as such. So how, when does that meet? In my head, I guess. <laughs> um, so the music, of course, you know, music, you could hear a two, piece, a two minute piece of music and be moved by it. And so as a visual artist, the idea of being able to make something that's only two minutes long and being able to move the viewer is a huge, it's an ultimate challenge, you know? So in a sense, I use music for its reference, for its emotional charge, for its, what it means to me or what it means within the history of music or what it means in relationship to the images. So that's a whole line of discourse which takes place. Sometimes I like doing things like having dancers um, from one continent and then putting music from another continent and there's actually no, no relationship between the two. But then I edit it in such a way that you have the illusion that the Balinese dancers are dancing to a piece of Sidney Bechet, which is just not possible. But it's edited in such a way that it tries to work. So in a video called Body and Soul, I somehow think that the body expresses its soul when it manages to dance to the wrong music. So that's a kind of musical reasoning. The symmetry really comes from a whole other form of reasoning, a whole different form of re reasoning. Um, in the early 80s, when I used symmetry, um, it was a way of embracing, rather, the ugliness of video. You know, like video had all these cheesy effects, and everyone said, oh, but video is so ugly because of those cheesy effects. And I somehow thought that it's by entering that world of ugliness in video that I might come out the other side and find some beauty in it. So I was using symmetry as a way of, uh, of and another thing I think is that I think that cinema is, uh, film is you have an actor, a director, a script, you know, everything is happening in front of the camera. Whereas with video, it's really much more about what you do with the image, how you can manipulate it, how you could rip it and put it on top of each other, cut and paste it. You know, that's an internet term, you know? So, so this idea of, and then with digital, even more, where the original and the copy are the same. So you could multiply it. And, um, and therefore, this idea of multiplication, the original and the copy is the same, leads to a kind of fragmentation of the image as a single godlike identity, and just shows it to be just an image that can be manipulated and that's why I use a lot of kaleidoscope effects or, or repetitions. And then of course in a series I made sort of looking at Islamic culture and looking at Islamic art, you know, the, and uh, you know, the, the sort of spirituality is not expressed through the, the Christ image as it were, the icon as it were, but the, 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 the sacred is exp expressed through the mathematics of symmetry. So, you know, there is a kind of a serious side also to, uh, to this idea of using patterns and kaleidoscopes. And then, you know, if you think of the invention of cinema, you know, the magic of cinema is just uh, the, the illusion of movement and, and symmetry is very associated with. So in a sense, there are two different thoughts which you have put together and which coexist, but uh, I can't really imagine symmetry in the music 
and so it's, it's not, it's, it doesn't come from the music. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you all. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Koya. <laughs> and thank you all for coming here today. Um, I hope you had a, a great time. Thanks. <laughs>